and welcome to the How CMOs Commit podcast. I'm Margaret Malloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of the leading branding firm Siegel & Gale. From April to August 2020, I interviewed 50 CMOs from around the world as host of the Siegel & Gale Future of Branding event series. Although it pains me not to break bread in person, we've uncovered invaluable insights and memorable human stories during this virtual season. In many ways, this podcast provides an exclusive oral history of how brands and CMOs live in the COVID-19 era. From the decisions facing CMOs during this time to the commitments they are forging for the uncharted road ahead, the conversations are uniquely vulnerable and strategic. Please be sure to listen to the end when I provide my reflections on our discussion. This is how CMOs commit. Hello and welcome to Siegel and Gale Future Branding Virtual Roundtable. Every fortnight, we meet five marketing leaders to explore how they are building their brands. I'm your host, Margaret Molloy, Global CMO of Siegel & Gale. Siegel & Gale is a preeminent brand strategy, design, and experience firm. Today's Future of Branding, we are celebrating Pride. 2020 marks Pride's Golden Jubilee. It's been 50 years since the inaugural Pride Parade in 1970, and 51 years since the Stonewall Riot, where members of the Black LGBT community stood up against police brutality. We have hundreds of marketing leaders from around the world in this audience today, and we invite you to tell us where you are joining from and perhaps share how your brand or you personally are celebrating Pride in 2020. As ever, today I'm joined by five distinguished marketing leaders, and I invite you now to meet our panel. I'll spend a few moments talking with each, and then we'll come back and do something a little more in-depth with all five. So first, the quick introduction. I have Tiffin Dano Kwan, the CMO of Dropbox, Peter Markey, CMO of TSB Bank, Sven Seeger, Global Creative Director of Microsoft, Stephen Tristan Young, CMO of Poshmark, and Gwen Megita, Global Head of Social Impact, Equity, and Sustainability at Caesars Entertainment Corporation. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, you're all extremely welcome. So let's start with yourself, Tiffin. Good morning. Calling from San Francisco. Good morning. So, so tell us, it's 2020 a different year. How are you celebrating Pride this year? And, and how is Dropbox celebrating a Pride Month? So, so first of all, let me say how excited I am to be in this panel and have a conversation with uh, all of our distinguished guests and just the attention uh, given to the to the topic and to the community. It is just extraordinary to see um, to see the focus and and how meaningful many, many companies are um, in, in tackling, I would say, uh, a lot of justice related topics and LGBTQ is at, uh, at the core of it. 
you know, I am um, openly proud and active within my community circles, but also within Dropbox. Uh, one of the reasons I joined Dropbox was precisely uh, the company's stand on justice in general and the many, many activities that they do to support uh, underrepresented minorities, racial justice, and many other very um, big topics. So our brand stands for equality, diversity, and inclusion, of course. Uh, we're very active. We have a lot of internal activities that are happening on a monthly basis, not just to celebrate, I would say, the Pride Month. We try to do it uh, every single month of the year, and we have a variety of ways of showing up. We take care of our people, our employees, uh, and our own CEO is taking a stand on, on many of those activities. So it's a, it's a proud moment, not just for this month. It's a pride moment throughout the year. And you're a native of France, now living in San Francisco. Tell us, you, you touched on that very important notion of inclusion. Yeah. There, have there ever been times where you felt excluded? because of your orientation? So, you know, I fortunately perhaps didn't necessarily feel that way, I will say. But bear in mind, I come from a country that, um, you know, recognized LGBTQ uh, rights. I came at a point also when I, I did my own come out when I was in, uh, in Asia, where I had a fortunate um, situation where my company was supportive, my circles, my family was supportive. With that being said, there are some places around the world, especially where I, I spent some parts of my career in my life, uh, Southeast Asia, where it is not easy for everyone. So I want to be very um, measured in my answer to say, well, I did not necessarily feel any, any kind of discrimination per se, I was very privileged, very privileged to, to be in a situation where I was not affected by it. With that being said, I was also very prudent. I was quietly staying in my circle at the time when I was uh, in that part of the world, became a lot more vocal when, when I moved to the U.S. And San Francisco, as you can imagine, is a very... Um, open place to do this, but I still have many friends uh, back in Southeast Asia that are not as privileged or lucky and still remain very closeted, uh, very, very prudent in the way they live. It's just a matter of cultural bias also. So you are, there's an intersection uh, between cultural bias and, uh, and gender bias and, and sexual orientation bias as well. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Tiffin. Let's now go over to the UK, where I'm joined by Peter Markey, as introduced earlier, CMO of TSB, and very active as an ally to the LGBT community at your office. So, so Pete, tell us about how uh, you're celebrating Pride in London uh, in terms of the bank and, and, and more broadly in terms of your colleagues at work as a community. Well, Pride Month is such an important month, isn't it? It's it's marking key, a key moment and a moment, I think, to celebrate and recognise the importance of the LGBT community and the importance that people should feel free to be themselves. You know, whilst it's it's sad that we're not able to do physical parades this year, it shouldn't stop Pride March still, Pride still being celebrated throughout the month. So we've been really active. We've got 500 branches across the UK, we've got 8,000 colleagues uh, across the UK, 
And we've been encouraging each of them to do their own thing to celebrate Pride. And we've been providing all sorts of materials to help with that. So uh, people have cooked Pride cakes and been uh, offering them to customers in, in, in branches, so rainbow cakes. Through to actually, you know, we've got a really thriving network on Yammo that's increased fivefold in the last two years. And we've had uh, colleagues recording podcasts on a range of topics. We have a weekly uh, Yammer um, call similar to this, and be able to share stories and share where they are, and also people to share their own stories about Pride. I think the key thing for us as a business has been, you know, I've, I've been the exec sponsor for LGBT for about three years now. And I was determined when I came in to, to, to start by getting, getting our own house in order before we went out and talked about anything externally. So we've done a lot as an organization. There's always more to do. But to make all our colleagues from the LGBT community feel absolutely at home, you know, I'm determined that we have a culture where everyone feels able to completely bring their full selves to work. They shouldn't have to hide anything or not be able to express themselves. That's absolutely what our culture is about. So my role, I think, is to, to make sure that happens, to make sure it's a reality, to make sure that's represented around our executive table. And also importantly, in the sorts of jobs we do, I want to make sure advertising our creative, we need to reflect society as it is today. We need to reflect that we should have same-sex couples in our advertising. We should encourage that. We should celebrate it. And I think an important part of my job is to move the narrative on to absolutely show that um, a rich, inclusive culture is powerful and important and matters today. So look, I think Pride Month is, is amazing. And this year we're doing all we can even in lockdown to celebrate and recognize it. But I think you know, my role, I think, is an all year round one to make sure that our culture is right and to make sure everyone feels welcome and celebrated for who they are. Thank you, P. So. He touched on technology. Let's now go to Sven Seeger over at Microsoft. So Sven, tell us how Microsoft is celebrating Pride this year. I do want to chat with you more in detail when we get to your individual segment, but, but specifically, this is a different year with COVID and economic turmoil and so many other topics, distractions, preoccupations. How is Microsoft uh, dealing with pride and supporting it in 2020. So it's, it's very it's a very unique year. There's three different topics. Obviously, there are more than three topics, but there's three big topics. It's a pandemic. It's COVID. It's obviously race, racial injustice, and obviously there's pride as well. In your question, you asked about like how do we prioritize these things um, to me, and we actually focusing on all three, but in very very different ways. In very different ways, how we we think about it. Microsoft is in a situation in which our products and services are incredibly relevant. And, and in that way, we are actually just celebrating or telling the stories of the teachers, of the nurses, and all of the people using our products. And um, that's about it. And the role of Microsoft is inherently clear because it's kind of like so technology underlying it. We don't have to talk much about it. With pride and racial injustice, both are built on internal momentum for corporate action, but in a very different way. So starting with racial injustice, that is a leadership um, um, guidance uh, that we have at, at, at the company that it's kind of really top down. It is, it's, it's, it's very clear what the mandate is. And we're focusing on that. And obviously it, it incorporates the large black and Microsoft community with 
tried, it's the other way around. It's kind of like it's also commu uh, uh, community-based. Thousands and thousands of people uh, uh, each year are celebrating Pride at Microsoft, but it's more like a grassroots commitment and a grassroots movement that is expressed and that has leadership endorsement. So this year, I think the priority is in racial, on racial injustice, but there is an inter intersectionality that we are very sensitive about, like how these things relate to each other. And Sven, what about your personal story? Uh, I think originally from Germany, now living in the United States. Was there ever a time when you felt excluded or when you felt supported by an ally? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So I, I came out in the 80s and I, I kind of, yes, I was exposed many, many times from uh, home to school, topics of exclusions, and I left. I left uh, by moving. I moved cities. I moved countries. I selected where I work where I go on vacation. That's a reality to many um, kind of LGBTQ plus um, um, people. It gets especially restrictive if you are in an interracial gay marriage, which I am, where like there's a tons of areas in the world and in the United States where you can't go. So the good thing about this whole thing, the, the places where you can go, they're usually very interesting and very nice to live. And so that's, that's, so that's how I minimize the exposure. But it was very deliberately. I had to like move across the world in order to find a place. Thank you for sharing that. So Tristan, Tristan, you're at Poshmark, fantastic e-commerce and social platform, earlier stage company, very active on social media, inherent in your business. Tell us what does pride mean for a company like yours that it's at a very different stage of maturity? Definitely. Um, thank you, Margaret, for having us today as well and, and being able to include our company across so many like amazing brands. You know, for us as a company, that's basically what we, we call a marketplace. It's really important for us to sort of think through and, and really understand how do we address the fact that we have a really wide audience, that we speak to so many different people across the United States and Canada, but also how do we sort of define our identity and our brand? And it's actually, I'll say and share that it's a journey that we're starting on right now. Because I think this past year was really transformative for us. Like, uh, we launched into another country. We launched many more categories. So I'm doing a lot where I'm taking a lot of the experiences I've worked at from other larger brands and bringing it to Poshmark and sharing, hey, here's how we can be the kind of brand we want to be two, three years from now. But here's the kind of investment we need to do now in terms of how do we think about our communication strategy? How do we think about our people strategy? And then how do we think about diversity inclusion internally? And you know, the unfortunate thing is for a lot of smaller companies, Diversity and inclusion is not the most important thing. It's how do you raise capital? How do you grow the category? How do you show profitability? And we're at an interesting point where a lot of those things have been solved. And we're now able to actually think through smartly, but also thoughtfully, how do we create that brand that's going to speak to a wide audience, but be as inclusive as possible? And what's great is our brand has always been about community. It's about inclusion. One of our favorite internal company values is embrace your weirdness. And it's, it's a wonderful metaphor for really how uh, we hire, how we promote, how we also allow and foster just inclusivity inside the company. And I know that when I first joined, my CEO, Manish Chandra, really talked a lot about how he wanted a leader who can really, you know, who would come from a place of strength, who also had a background that I did to be able to help cultivate that diversity. Because in seeing more visible leaders who are people of color, who are of LGBTQIA background, it would inspire others to also feel that they could achieve 
And so for me, I have a, a dual role in helping to shape the company's marketing strategy, but also I recognize that my visibility as a leader can help others inside the company, but also outside. Stephen, anything you would share on your personal experience? I know you spent your formative years in the Philippines, then came to the United States as a child. Yeah. Any, any experience that you think has shaped your perspective? Sure. I recently actually just posted the article on this on LinkedIn and, and really sharing how as I was moving up in my sort of leadership experience at different larger corporations, you know, I always felt that I had to struggle with different kinds of perceived organizational biases, whether it was because I was a person of color or I was LGBT and I just happened to have both of them. And so really thinking through how do I navigate the perception barriers that exist for people um, such as myself? And really, how do you sort of own who you are and your authentic self and try to find those organizations that will celebrate that versus trying to sort of, you know, put a square peg into a round hole. And like I said, it's not necessarily a knock on organizations. It's really, I think, for each of us identifying where's the right place for us to be accepted and to feel as authentic as possible. And I think that for me has been a really interesting journey, having worked at both large companies and small high growth tech companies. And, you know, I feel that for me, I'm able to really share with a lot of people my experience and I'm very visible and open about it and vulnerable because I want people to understand that you can achieve more, even if you feel that you can't. Right. And that, you know, we think about Tim Cook coming out in 2014 before that, I never thought it would be possible for a, a, a gay person, an LGBT person to be a CEO of a company of that level. So I think visibility is incredibly important and for many of us in these roles. Uh, we have the responsibility. Indeed, in, in terms of being role models, largely. Yep. So, Gwen, let's, uh, let's now chat about your experience. Um, you're leading a very important sort of function that intersects with the marketing function at Caesars Entertainment. How is your organization celebrating Pride in 2020? I think it's a continuation of our track record. I, I was thinking about the Employment Non-Discrimination Act that uh, the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court just ruled on last year, last week. Twelve years ago, we uh, had signed on to endorse um, a, a federal legislation for ENDA employment. And I had visualized what that would look like. It's just I came out in the company more actively about around that time. I was very fortunate to have a, a boss, now current board member of Caesars, who encouraged that, um, encouraged the first um, LGBT employment uh, employee network group as well. So the work has really continued. It, it became more of a property-based approach to pride really relationships, um, supporting many nonprofits. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked to the uh, LGBT Center of Southern Nevada and many of them across the country, including in Nevada, are really struggling to understand what does their sustainability look like, right? We can celebrate what we want. We can continue to reopen and attract our customers, but I'm really concerned about how do we shift as social impact officers, the sustainability of these organizations, the homelessness rate, the uh, hunger rate has skyrocketed in many of our markets. So really looking at how do we shift to grow very quietly behind the scenes and stabilize their operations so they can remain open and healthy as well. So I would say celebrate, but broaden it um, behind the scenes into a, a new approach to supporting their efforts. That's a very interesting framing. Thank you for that, Gwen. Anything you would share on a personal level 
either when you felt particularly included or frankly excluded? Yeah, I think the company has always been very open. The more I, I was open about it, um, being LGBT, now being a parent of a four and six year old, um, I feel like they're they're old now, but they're not in the whole scheme of things. And it just dawned on me a few days ago when my, my kids said, you know, why is it that all the books we read and everything we talk about, they're, they're talking about moms and dads. They're talking about, you know, and why are they, uh, they're, they're paler people, right? They're basically, she didn't use the word white but my daughter used the word pale but why are we not seeing um, they looked they tried to describe a void and tried to describe why we were not like most books and most media and i tried to describe it's a it's a constant education right not necessarily going to look for people of color uh, media and books and stories about families but i think just Trying to frame that and contextualize it for them is it's really healthy. So, so Tiffin, let's chat a little more in terms of Dropbox in particular. One of, the, one of the questions I want to ask you is to anchor us all in the business benefits of inclusion. I believe there's a broad-based consensus on the moral imperative across all of the facets that they, all of us have talked about today. But we're living in a, in a challenging economic environment. Talk to us about the commercial reality and why businesses ought to embrace inclusion as you have done at Dropbox. So let me just start with within employees. You know, at Dropbox, we do believe that in order to serve our customers best, we need to start by serving our employees best. And we fundamentally believe that informing and educating everybody, whether it's the external customer or employees or partner ecosystem around the values of inclusion will have a beneficial impact from a business standpoint. So we're spending an enormous amount of time informing and educating. So if we talk about informing, educating on pride, we have a series of activities. They are meant to really educate and you know, we have things like our chief legal officer who is sending regular updates, taking a stand, explaining what's going on with the Supreme Court, the, your decisions, and, and, and literally just giving this level of information breaks barriers, educates people, they're better informed. And what we found is that when we extend this, it becomes part of your culture. It becomes part of something that you share within your own company, but also outside when you do business with people, topics come up all the time, a topic of inclusion. We see it also in the data. When we take a stand with, for example, supporting underrepresented minorities, LGBTQ being one of them, when we take a stand on racial justice, we see it in the data. There's a correlation. And we also understand that it boosts employee morale, engagement, retention, that is a critical piece in order for us to continue to serve our customers better. Retention means we have, I would say, a very engaged employee base that allows us to really conduct uh, business activities very meaningfully with our uh, ecosystem of customers and partners and developers. So we see it as, I would say, one of the key data metrics from a business standpoint is the more you include, the more you engage, the more you retain that voice and capture it, the better it becomes from a business standpoint. So that's that's the stand we take, drawbacks and being very authentic in the way we do it. 
And of course, you're in a very competitive labor market. Yeah, that's a good thing. That's yeah. a good thing. The more competitive, the more you have, you have to be compelled to have an authentic voice and, and really have a storyline and a narrative that really aligns not only with your values, but what you believe is the right thing to do overall, you know, with, with your customers. And make no mistake, even online conversations, it comes up. And customers are going to judge us not just on the quality of our solutions, but also on the quality of what we believe in, the, the, the values that we carry, and generally, genuinely the way we conduct business. So it becomes a metric on the way we're being judged as conducting business. Tiffin, you touched on the landmark legislation last week around non-discrimination. Uh, very briefly, what are the implications of that? Listen, we celebrated it within our, our Dropbox organization. We are also taking very active actions to really support uh, our underrepresented minorities. We're training, we're coaching. Every single leader is actually very actively engaged in ensuring that they're having meaningful conversations with with our employees and, and we take a stand. We really are taking a stand. Our CEO was the first one to, to be the very visual, very, very visible person to take a stand and uh, having the courage to take that stand was, was really important. So the impact is uh, enormous, you know, I would say, and, and not to be underestimated. We celebrate it. Final question, looking externally to the market and the market opportunity, what advice would you give to CMOs on the call who are targeting LGBTQ people? What is the important factors to take into account when marketing to this population? Be real. It's about being real. In my opinion is, um, you know, you see a lot of activities in one month of the year. Everybody's taking great pictures. The logos suddenly change colors. But how authentic is that? You know? Uh, that, that is the question we have to ask ourselves. Is, uh, is that really an effort that we sustain throughout the year and we really mean it? And we, we are able to capture authentic stories. It's part of our values or is it just seasonal, right? So the, the advice is um, to not just focus on the seasonal opportunity, not even look at it as an opportunity. We have to look at it as a duty, especially uh, our friends, colleagues, peers, where we all belong to the community. It has to be something that is from within, extremely authentic. And otherwise, people won't trust us. They will see it for what it is, which is a, a seasonal opportunistic uh, acquisition play. Uh, and that's not how we want to be defined. We really, truly want this to come from within so that it becomes second nature. And more importantly, doing it when nobody's watching. And that's the... Uh, I would say the, the, the part that helps educate from within. Thank you. Thank you, Tiffin. So let's go over to Pete in the UK. So Pete, I know TSB Bank is very active in the Pride of Britain Awards and in many external support areas for the community. Can you talk a little bit about the commercial benefits around that stance? and whether or not that's a question and how you as CMO support the investment you make. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we never really look at it in commercial terms. I think the, to me, the important bit is we, we, we represent all of the UK. So our customers are customers across the UK. So I'm really clear that everything we do in all our communications, our approach has to represent the rich tapestry of what makes up the UK today. So if we aren't in step with our customers, we aren't in step with, with where consumers are, 
then we'll fall behind. You know, and that's across everything, not, not just the, the, the topic we're covering here today. So I think you know, we've done a lot of listening, particularly over the last couple of years, a lot of time to really understand uh, different audiences and to make sure that all our communication isn't tone deaf, to make sure we're really representing you know, the, the UK that we want, you know, we, we want to serve and that we're there to help. Um, so listening has been a really important part of that as well. So there are probably also some natural commercial benefits, but if you're, if you're more in step with consumers, then that is helpful. But we never really put it that way. It's more just been the the, the need to, to listen and uh, ensure that everything is in step with, with, uh, with the UK and the UK we want to represent. So Pete, you are the exact sponsor of the LGBT group at uh, TSB Bank. Talk to us about what you've learned from that experience in terms of being an effective ally. Yeah, that's no, a great question. I, I, I was exec sponsor for LGBT at Aviva before I, I joined TSB, and I was inspired to do it by an amazing colleague who, uh, who was the brand director at the time. And I, and, I, I, and I remember saying to her, what, what, what difference can I make? And she was asked, you can make a huge difference as a, as a, as a senior marketer or a senior leader in an organization making a stand and saying this matters and this is important is, is really key. And that's also been true at TSB, to be able to have the conversation at exec level about the importance of inclusion, the importance of the LGBT community, and to bring some of that knowledge and understanding around the executive table has been really key. And it's been triggered by even the smallest things. So in I can't claim credit for this idea. I know others have done it, but in the in my first year as exec sponsor, uh, one of the one of my colleagues from the LGBT group we've got uh, came to me and said, "Look, could we produce enough rainbow lanyards so that every colleague has got one?" And um, I think he thought I'd go and cost it up and say no, but I, I said, "No, let, well, let's just do it." And actually, that is a very small thing, but actually, as I walk around the organisation and see people wearing a rainbow lanyard with our logo on, and, and our colleagues do, particularly from the LGBT community, that is hugely symbolic of you're welcome. Everyone is welcome to be themselves. And, and to see that visually represented, even though it's a small thing, I think really, really matters. I think that the listening bit has been really key. We've deliberately marked out the calendar for key key dates. And I know our communication shouldn't be triggered just by that, but there's National Coming Out Day, as well as things like Pride Month. We really recognize that with relevant content. Uh, we produced a film with our colleagues talking about what National Coming Out Day means, sharing their coming out story. And it's been... Really interesting just seeing how the content we've created and shared, some internally, some internally and externally, has really connected with colleagues and given them even more confidence to feel they've got a voice. And having a voice is really important. Uh, and the part that's really been brilliant this month is, is in previous years, I've been far more involved in the planning of what we do through Pride. And actually, the group have planned it all. So I've been sort of like overseeing it in the context that they, they'll bring me ideas and go, that's great. But they, you know, the community, which I say is... is five times the, the, the level it was just a couple of years ago. The, the community have run that and developed it through Yammer. Podcasts and materials, some of which we shared externally, a lot internally. Um, so it's a really great, thriving community with a beating heart. But then the key thing I've learned is, is really about listening and engaging and making sure as an ally you're, you're completely representing around the executive table uh, the strength and positivity and brilliance of the LGBT community. It's really key. Thank you, Pete. So let's go to your perspective, Sven. You know, Microsoft, from a business standpoint, one of the most, from my perspective, fascinating turnaround stories, arguably, in the recent past in terms of your success as a company. And that, on the outside, looking in, seems to be happening in parallel 
with your organization's work around inclusion seems to be exemplary. And I know you were one of the early organizations to provide benefits for same-sex domestic partners. So Microsoft has a great track record. As a leader in the organization, what do you think are the lessons that can be learned from that to other companies who may not be quite as far along on their inclusion journey? Yeah, so this is very thing. Thank you for, for, for this question. I, I recognize the uh, maturity level of Microsoft in uh, as a company has evolved since uh, 1989, um, in incorporating policies and creating a community. I think the overall lesson that I can that, 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 that goes into like kind of like three themes. The first theme is is around like building on an internal momentum. It's really important that that it is that that you're driving change from within with the experts, and the experts are your LGBTQ plus community in in in, in, in the uh, the organization. They are the ones that know it, and so they can actually help drive change, drive policy, inform leadership. And obviously it's a combination between internal momentum and leadership. And it goes back and forth and it needs to inform each other. So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is, is you have to remain kind of like the grassroots anti-corporate movement, movement quality while you are still within the organization. So there needs to be something for, for it's the role of the brand needs to be an endorser of the people who actually uh, are having the voice and the movement. And then the leadership has to change the policies and, and react to it. So it's, it's, it's an interplay. So that's that's and then the, the last thing is, is is and that's a Microsoft specific thing, but it's our learning is is LGBTQ plus communities are changing and we are focusing by driven by the internal community on something called queer consciousness. And that's kind of like of 19 different kinds of gender identities within the company and, 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 and so on. It's a lot of education around that. And it's kind of like, it's a different way of like, it's not just, it, it's about the intersectionality of like different topics. So you are including racial things. If you're thinking about like um, a, a trans black um, a woman, it's different. Like there's all these, these interplays that you have to do that. So the three things, internal momentum, grassroots, keep the grassroots momentum um, going. And then think about the reality of the community now. I had to learn a lot by that, by myself, because I come from a different generation on this. Yes, indeed. So I have to ask you as a creative fan, your perspective on whether brands should change their logos and their identities in June. And I know at Microsoft, you've introduced some really interesting and fun uh, special edition products. How do you counsel marketers to think about that decision? So at Microsoft, we, we, we absolutely are against it. The reason, it, it doesn't mean that it didn't exist because it's a community movement. You will see rainbow logos here and there, but um, that is not, our corporate logo hasn't changed because it is not a Microsoft uh, initiative. It's the people of Microsoft's community that their voices are heard, that they're celebrated, and a Microsoft is the platform for these discussions. This is our last year's campaign. This is this year's campaign. These are massive, massive campaigns. We are talking about like 
like 150 million engagements. We are talking about 15,000 participants. We are talking about, like, like our, our private campaign is really, but it is driven by the community as a grassroots movement. And so as Microsoft, Microsoft uses its identity as a platform for that group to have the discussion, to inform leadership, and then leadership will take the information and uh, and change its policies and uh, creates um, um, real action. Really interesting distinction. Thank you for sharing that. So, Stephen, let's now go over to, to your world. We yep. talked about earlier the notion of being an earlier stage company. Mm -hmm. You're also incredibly active appropriately so, on social media. What's your perspective this year, indeed more generally, but particularly this year, on the role of social media in Pride? It's a, it's a fantastic question, and it's, I'm sure, a lot of marketers are constantly grappling with how do you decide how to sort of present your brand, a support for a specific cause, and then manage the fact that it's also an open forum for people to really you know, share when they disagree with you and also when they don't believe that as far as your brand and when do you choose to respond, not respond. I think for us where we've created such a strong social presence and our entire identity has been, you know, fundamentally built off of social where people can interact with each other to buy the brands that are favorite. For us, it's been navigating through when should we say something versus not and that not every comment or question necessarily needs to be responded to. And I think that's really, really hard for any brand because you also feel that you need to respond to everything when sometimes people should be allowed to speak their voice without having to kind of try to address it each time. And I think that's something that as a growing marketing team, one of the things I really help the team think through is, you know, do we have a framework for how to address different concerns that are happening within our community? So that when we come up with, you know, should we advertise on this platform? Should we address the fact that we, you know, we supported Black Lives Matter, we've never done it before as actively and that, Customers are probably not used to that kind of conversation and may have an initial reaction. How do we handle that? And it's been a really amazing journey, especially for a lot of young people who often want to address everything and, and sort of say, hey, you know what? Restraint sometimes actually speaks more than addressing each one. Uh, and that not everything needs to be responded to unless it's a collective decision amongst you know, our leadership team. So I think one for us is just that navigation of when to respond versus not, and really how do we want to create a framework first internally so that we're not being reactive, but we're actually being proactive with it. Um, and then secondarily, how do we sort of take this idea about um, diversity and make sure that it also exists across all of our platforms and that it's a consistent voice because also we address a lot of communities in our, um, within our marketplace. We have people who love specific items. We have people from different, um, different groups. How do we address that? You know, whether you're on Twitter or LinkedIn. So that's another form for us where, you know, during this COVID window, we actually really, we took other people from other groups inside the company and actually let them run our social media channels. And the strategy there, which, you know, I think for a lot of larger companies, probably you would never think about for a smaller company, we want to be nimble. We also wanted to include more voices because we recognize that different people had a different point of view and that might work better on say LinkedIn versus Twitter, but it allowed us to actually include more voices in the way that we use social media, especially in a time when I think for COVID, a lot of companies were thinking about cutting marketing spend and, and you really had to engage your communities and double down on it. 
but how do you have the same five people suddenly running 15 channels? And really for us, it was how do we leverage the power of, of our internal community, our employees to actually grow each of these channels, which is our best way to communicate with our customers. And community is vital to you. If my research serves me, I think you have 60 million community members. Yes. One sale every second. So your influence and the frequency by which you touch your members Yes. A tremendous voice and influence in the community. Yeah. I have to say uh, that Meet the Posher, the hashtag Meet yeah. the Posher campaign on Instagram is an intriguing one. Talk yeah. to us about the inspiration and, and how that's being received. Sure. So one of the things that's really interesting about our company is it's really, as she says, we started really off as a community-based tech platform and that the, the tech is really the means for people to connect with each other. And even when we think about our brand, it's not so much the technology, it's really the people that make it up because we're uh, a universe of over 60 million, like I said, customers with 10 plus million sellers, understanding who these sellers are and their story is a big part of our brand. And what I've discovered is a lot of our sellers have amazing stories, right? We have um, single mothers who are supporting their families by selling on Poshmark. Uh, we have stories of women who have survived um, domestic abuse and have found a way to support themselves by selling on Poshmark. And for us, being able to surface those stories and meet the posture format allows us to showcase the fact that, you know, we as Poshmark is just the, the, we're like the middle layer. Everyone you're connecting to when you're buying from someone, you're not buying from like I said, not, not a knock, you're not buying from a gigantic warehouse, you're buying from someone. And when you buy from someone, you're impacting their lives. And that's a really big part about why that format exists and why so much of our communication is about exposing the members of the community. And in, in that way, we have a dual challenge. How do we make sure that we represent as many people as possible, but also make sure that the stories that, were, that, the stories that are the most impactful don't get lost. And that more importantly, it doesn't feel exploitative. Because it can, you can easily go from wanting to feature someone because of their story, but how do you handle it in a way that feels authentic to our brand, but also makes that person feel comfortable when they share their story and meet the posture? It's because they, we want to attract other people in a similar fashion for them to come to the platform. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Thank you for that, Stephen. So Gwen, let's now head over to Caesars. You've been lauded as an organization by HRC for equality on, on so many levels, so consistently. What are the lessons that other brands can take from your experience? Lessons, and if you wouldn't mind sharing some of the struggles and how you might have overcome the struggles, because in retrospect, we look back and the tendency is to celebrate the outcomes. But my gut is some of these were challenging to achieve? I think a lot of the struggles, I mean, thinking about my day-to-day -day experience, uh, what Tiffin and Sven had mentioned earlier, and authenticity, many times it's a lack of awareness of maybe the CMO or maybe someone on the senior management team. You know, for, for me and others in the LGBT community, having adoption benefits, surrogacy, IVF benefits, new parent leave, unless you try to use those benefits, right? It's $20,000 a pot for IVF. I mean, you, you could literally have to sell a house to, um, for, for many people, if they own a house, if they're fortunate enough to have a family, if you're a same-sex, same-gender couple. And it's, it's incredible where I think the marketer might, I'm supported by a lot of marketers, but with regard to 
lessons learned. It's it's really the how do you tell the story and how can they help us as kind of subject matter types to tell that story. Um, I get a lot of resistance about doing anything in quote unquote airtime right in our properties, and I totally understand that. Maybe it's earned media. Maybe it's it's other ways to to do. We, the biggest challenge is the lack of awareness of anything that we do or much that we do around LGBT or other work. Um, you don't want to be a, you know, be your own, be your own drums. Um, we need um, help from the experts, the marketers and the communication types as well. I think the other lessons learned, and I've seen a few other big companies, great reputation where the lobbying side, legislative side versus the marketing side versus the diversity side are not connected, right? And they get caught um, surprisingly and embarrassingly so with even being big donors to anti-LGBT candidates or anti-LGBT uh, causes where the diversity side might have no idea that that's happening. And I've seen this fix being forced in areas such as the climate movement, where ratings and grades are based on that alignment, to what extent are you, I mean, that, that's the biggest, where the rubber hits the road is where you're spending your lobbying money and legislation and how you're treating your employees when it really costs millions of dollars. And unless you look under the hood, you could have HRCs of the world, you could have other watchdog groups, but there are a lot of ways to go sidewards pretty quickly in this, this, this age. So it just seems like a resounding consensus on the panel that it's not about just the month of June. It's not about, if at all, changing your logo and flying the flag in June. But it's an election year, too. And there's been a lot of discussion around the power we have as marketers uh, in how we represent people in our advertising, our photography. But what about the advocacy part? Where is the opportunity there and how should, if at all, marketers and brand marketers be aware of the intersection of advocacy and brand building? You know, knowing, having the values, having the strategy around corporate responsibility, you know, we're not going to stand for everything, but what are the five things or eight things out of 10 we might do? And who is on this rapid response team to respond to issues or respond to making a statement? Right. So I think we need to be we and many companies, I think, need to be more nimble and maybe more strategic it's just because the CEO might speak out on something. There might not be the depth around the policies and the culture in the company that back that up. I, I like looking at uh, third party tools like HRC and, and others. I think the, the legislative advocacy piece probably needs to be much more aligned with the lobbying side. Right? Our lobbyists and others consider themselves firefighters. Right versus policymakers and value and value investors of the company, understand what what really matters to the employee and what really matters to the customer. If they're LGBT or other uh, marginalized groups, um, if it's benefits, if it's protections, I think we're moving into a whole new era from protections and non-discrimination to benefits and proactive uh, support for economic equity. And that's a piece. Like, what is it going to make take to make the table even for economic equity, whether it be LGBT or African American or immigrant? And I don't think very many companies have done that across the landscape. That's that's huge and significant, and probably the biggest piece to align legislation and candidacy with a company platform, or I would say industry platform, which we try to align that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting that opportunity for greater congruence 
among the marketing messaging, the advocacy, the policy and executive speeches and, and all of the various touch points that a brand has in the community and trying to identify the opportunity for congruence, for maximum impact. So with, with those great insights, I'm going to go around and ask you sort of a two-part question. And if you would briefly respond in turn, I'll start uh, with yourself, Tiffin. So we, we touched on it briefly in referencing our countries of origin, but we all have multifaceted identities and your orientation is one aspect of your identity as it is of all of us. So two parts, part one, how, how important is it for you to emphasize um, and the LGBT component of your identity and support others? And the second part is in our marketing, internal and external, what's your commitment as a marketing leader to advance exclusivity? Thank you, thank you. So to answer the, the first question, it is very important to me. It's part of my identity, it's who I am. And I can't work effectively, I can't serve my community unless I'm exactly who I am. So it, took, it takes sometimes for a lot of people more time than others. I, I think fondly about some of my friends who are still hidden and many of them around the world. And it's hard, it's really difficult. But, but when you come to a point where you can be yourself and you have... Um, you're fortunate enough to be able to be yourself with your community, at work, in your country, then it becomes a part of who you are. I really fundamentally believe it. So it's critical. It's really critical. And once you come to that point, and I'm fortunate to be one of these people, you, you have a duty to continue to advocate for sure and just um, encourage, inform, listen. I mean, I take all of the inputs from our colleagues here on the call today, continue to support grassroots movements, being visible, and also having a compassionate voice for the people who are not there yet. You know, I've had uh, a lot of the times I try to understand why is it that people don't understand how critical, you know, uh, gender equality is. And I try to put myself in the shoes of those people. And a lot of the time it's because they're scared. They're scared of losing something. They are scared of losing their own advantages or they want to protect something in their life. Or, and then it gave me some compassion to think about their point of view, continuing and committing to advocating, informing, having this very compassionate approach into explaining things to people in a simple way with a lot of compassion is, is my personal commitment and not judging. Not everybody is at the same stage in their understanding. And I've found that the more compassion I bring to the table and the more listening, um, the better. So Sven, from your vantage point, we talked about identity. What obligation, if any, do you have as an LGBTQ member in terms of advancing equality, inclusion for others? And do you actively think about that? Is it a burden? Is it an obligation? Is it a responsibility? Yeah, I think I think so. So to, to, to give you a little bit the background, I mentioned I, I came out when I was in, in the 80s. And back then, when you came out, you were 
everybody was dying around you. So you had like no time. So that was kind of like you were at more funerals than at pride parades for sure. And so being gay was like the main portion of my identity. Everything else was second because it was just so visible and you had to fight for it and people were scared and your parents were scared and, and, and so on. But this has evolved. This has evolved. Like, like, like the, the gay community and like the issues have evolved. Gender identities have evolved, and I evolved too with that. And so, and 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 and, and I see my responsibility to 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 look at these, the beauty of young people expressing themselves in these new free ways, in ways that I couldn't even imagine, and building rituals, new lives, and, and, and so on. And so, so, so it's about like, in that world, it's not about one dimensional being gay or not. In that world, it's the interconnectivity between multiple issues. And that is how I uh, um, try to, uh, these intersections is what, what, what I'm focusing uh, in advice for marketing, or we are focusing in, on, on that and, and, and at Microsoft, like really a, a true insights-driven aspect about the individual, about the multiple components from, from it. And sometimes we are not leading with the LGBTQ plus part of the story. We're leading with another part of the story, but it's always there. And so this is kind of like, I think change, the world is changing and we are changing with it. And that's really, really beautiful. Thank you. So Stephen, it's worth reminding ourselves that pride began as a riot, not a parade. Uh, to me, that seems meaningful. From your perspective, where do you see your obligation, if any, for the community and your commitment? Sure. For me, the most important thing is about visibility and vulnerability. Uh, and so those are the two lenses that I look at, sort of my role being someone who can inspire people to say, hey, I'm, I can achieve that. The story that I often show with people is if I thought 10 years ago, I was working at a pretty big company, could I ever have imagined myself being a chief marketing officer of a high-tech company in Silicon Valley? I can tell you that I was hoping maybe I could be a VP. You know, I said uh, that I could never be who I was, that I might have to settle for this. And I'm sure many conversations happen a lot with younger people who feel like they have to settle because they can't be their full selves. Especially if I think about someone who's a transgender, you know, young employee thinking, well, maybe I can just settle for this because I can't be that. And I've heard that conversation so many times that it pains me. And so I recognize that the more visible I am, the more I can inspire others. But secondarily, I think vulnerability is important. You can be visible, but if you don't show who you are, then people don't understand the journey that you came on. And that for me, sharing my story, whether it's my failures or the things that I learned or the moments that I was fearful, I think help people understand that this isn't a perfect journey. Right. You see me on LinkedIn and you might see a perfect background, but there are so many zigs and zags and there are so many, you know, disappointments that get roped in there that don't that people don't see. And I really want people to understand that the more I share my story from that standpoint, the more they can also be empowered that way. So I, I always feel that those are the two lenses that a lot of leaders in my with my opportunity can really share with others outside. Powerful. Thank you. So, Pete, as a very visible ally. What's your commitment to the community? I think you know, my, my commitment is to continue to ensure in the business I work in that the, the culture is really inclusive. It's not just a, a phrase on the wall or, or something that's, that's spoken from the stage, but it's real and it's authentic and people can feel it and people are able to completely be themselves day in, day out. And secondly, I want to make sure all our creative work 
absolutely pushes the boundaries in a good way to reflect uh, the, the UK and reflect the world that we want to see, where people can be free to be themselves. And that's my commitment. Thank you. Gwen. I think it's very important to be open, authentic about who I am and, of course, bring my whole self to work. But I think there's a balance as well, because for a period of a few years and even repercussion to today, now eight years later, um, there's many in whether it be the company or community who would come to me as, as the gay issue person. Like I, I became pigeonholed. And when I spoke, I could sense that people thought I would be speaking about my issue and my issue alone. So I really needed to look at how do I diversify with, you know, whether it be sustainability issues. Um, I think the, the seat at the table that needs to have more voice are particularly African-American and black women and black men. So I, I became more vocal about my, my multiple dimension, of course, is right married to an immigrant refugee, Asian background, et cetera. So I think it's got to be careful about how I can use my voice and my, my power as a leader in the company with balance. It's how and when and how I might ask a straight ally to share his or her voice. Thank you. And thank you for calling out the notion of your voice and power. So in thanking our panel, I'd like to share my reflections. Our lively panel here traversed many areas, from brand building to intersectionality to being effective allies. Viewed through the prism of marketing, the LGBTQ market is both compelling and nuanced. The opportunity facing brands is how to reflect the tastes and attitudes of this audience in a way that feels authentic. We are reminded that much like the various LGBT flags, the community is not a monolith. Further, when we talk about parades and protests, it's meaningful to recall that Pride began as a riot by les led by lesbian and trans people of color. Examined through the lens of employer branding, while the Supreme Court ruling last week protecting gay and transgender workers from workplace discrimination is both a symbolic and a substantive step, we've explored today how companies will be rewarded and are being rewarded for going further to unleash the greatness of employees of all genders. As I reflect further on our conversation, seems to me that at the end of the day, the subject may not be about diversity or equality, even inclusion, but I would submit belonging. As business leaders, we all, as we all are, to foment belonging requires a move away from a DNI experimentation mentality to an investment mentality. This shift in approach and associated patience, behavioral and systems rewiring required to create the conditions for everyone to be successful. As we've heard here, presents vast potential for a company to have a competitive advantage in any market as identified by many of the panelists. As marketers, fostering an environment of belonging 
where people from diverse perspectives are freely contributing, smashing and building ideas provides immense opportunity for breakthrough creativity. The most interesting possibilities are presented by our differences. Sameness is redundant. Often creativity, I would offer, is a collision business. As people, we are all inherently complex. In this panel alone today, we've expressed our multifaceted identities, orientation, gender, race, country of origin, age, socioeconomic backgrounds, and more. As individuals, LGBTQ and allies alike, we can all make belonging tangible, actionable, and powerful by having more conversations like this with people who don't look and sound the same, with the recognition that any individual's perspective is both empowering and limiting and needs to be complemented by an empathetic exploration of others' views. Conversation can lead to understanding and understanding can lead to change. And change, in my mind, can create more belonging. As humans, we all have an innate desire to belong. Today, a key takeaway for me is that real progress is about committing to continually striving to build for our colleagues, our customers, and all of our constituents, regardless of community, a feeling of belonging. We all know what belonging feels like. When we feel that we belong, as customers, we buy from our favorite brands. As employees, we do our best work. As leaders, we build sustainable organizations. We transform, we grow, we inspire. My hope is that we all leave this conversation today further inspired to commit to build culture of belonging. Thank you. Thank you, Gwen. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Tiffin. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Sven. Thank you for joining How CMOs Commit. You've heard the strategic insights and professional commitments of top brand builders from around the world. I hope you also enjoyed my reflections on how this conversation is relevant to all marketers. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And please rate, review, and share this podcast. Until next time, this is how CMOs commit.